So taking off a little bit with the words, the words below the words, or the silence below the silence, below the below, below the words. Um, I was I was quite touched by uh, the way Gill started his talk the other night when he said I loved his uh, first statement when he said I get bored sometimes I get bored talking about the Dharma, you know, and I wondered where he was going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> But as he as he continued speaking about it, it was something that that I could really resonate with because he really started talking about how important it is for us to really dive into the experience itself, and not to just to stay with the concepts and the words and sort of our intellectual understanding of things, but what is going to help us? What's going to support us to go deeper? And to, it was beautiful what you mentioned because, you know, staying connected to something that feels more essential. In some ways, this is really what we're wanting, what we're longing for, is so that we're not just kind of going back up. The energy doesn't go back up just to the ideas and the plans and the futurizing and the thinking about the past, which is so much in, the, in their thinking but something that's really going to support us to stay more grounded and centered and connected with, with the, ourselves in the direct experience. I was thinking about um, when Gil was, was giving his talk and pointing to the direct experience, it reminded me of um, a couple of so-called Dharma talks that I had heard in the uh, beginning of my practice um, that I think these teachers who were teaching were having a similar kind of uh, 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 experience around the words in the Dharma. And I was on a, a three-month retreat, and so we were hearing a lot of Dharma talks, you know, three months of Dharma talks every night. And on this particular retreat, it was in the 80s, um, there was a teacher who the uh, teachers, Jack Cornfield was there, and Joseph Goldstein and some other teachers. They invited a, a woman named Sunanda who uh, had some other influences, Tibetan influences, probably uh, hin- uh, Hindu influences. And so she was wanting to really, again, shake up, shake us up a little, not just get caught up in the, in the words and the, kind of the intellectual aspect of the Dharma teachings, and so one night, um, we were all sitting there waiting for the Dharma talk. And all of a sudden, uh, the staff start. this was at the Insight Meditation Society, and there's a kind of a big platform, and the staff was coming in. There are two doors near the platform instead of in the back there on the side. And the staff started coming in carrying stacks of books from the library. They were just carrying the stacks of books, and they, they started putting the books on the platform, and then they'd go out and they'd get more books. And the platform just started filling up with stacks and stacks and stacks of books that were in the library. There were a lot of books. And she was just sitting there. And, and, then, you know, and then pretty soon the whole thing was filled up with books. And then she, and then she read one line from one of the books. <laughs> Which I don't remember exactly what the line was, but it was something like, 
words, words, the emptiness of words, let them all go and you will know the deepest understanding and wisdom. She closed the book and walked away. (laughs) That was the whole Dharma talk for the evening. And we're all sitting there, you know, just kind of like, well, that's it? You know, it's like, where's our, you know, sort of where's our entertainment for the night? (laughs) And all the books were just left on the platform, filled with so much Dharma that at any point we could pick it up and read if we wanted to know it. But what were we left with? What was that sort of direct experience of no words? No words. That that kind of, that taste of that, which is really so precious. So sometimes it's something that's going to shake us up so that we get beyond the thoughts, the concepts, or the conceptual structures of, of the Dharma, this direct experience. Interestingly, on that same retreat, uh, this was a kind of more you know, shake, shaking up, a little bit radical retreat, um, there was another teacher, uh, John Orr, this time, who had uh, come into the retreat as an ordained monk. He was an American um, who had been in Thailand with uh, the Ajahn Shah uh, community, came back as an ordained monk. He was in his robes, his head was shaved, and um, in the first part of the retreat, he was carrying on with his precepts and his uh, 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 practice. And then what we found, in the, again, in the middle of the retreat, uh, he was giving a couple of Dharma talks, and then one night he uh, showed up uh, fully clothed, in his regular clothes, and he had um, decided he was going to not be a monk anymore. He was disrobing, and he wanted to come out of the form. He just felt like it was he was kind of shackled by the form for that period of time. And he he came in with his clothes, and he that night he didn't want to just sit down and give a dharma talk he decided that he was going to, again, just do something, kind of express his freedom from the form. Freedom from the form. So he was in his regular clothes, and he had this jukebox with him. And he put on some music, and he just started dancing around in the... In the, in the room, and just, just being free, free of form, free of the forms. And, <laughs> and it was beautiful. It was just wonderful just to see him express himself in that way, that he could just, you know, say, I, I want to be done with the shackles of this. And again, it was a direct teaching. You know, the way, again, that ways we may be, we may to hold on to these ideas of being in a particular form or the way we have to practice or the way we have to be. And he was really just having a great time in the meditation hall. So we, we haven't done, we haven't had so many teachers who do these more kind of <laughs> exotic kind of teachings up here. And I'm not going to do that tonight. <laughs> I don't have something in mind. <laughs> but I was, I was reflecting more on how, you know, sometimes the words, the words of the Dharma, sometimes you know, they're, they're not really, you know, we can listen, we can hear them, and, 
And they, sometimes it's very inspiring to hear the words. And yet it's not the words. It's not about the words. It's really about what's happening in our experience. What are we in touch with? What are we connecting with? Are we awake? Are we alive? Are we engaged in what's happening? And so wanting to, wanting to bring that out in some way so that we don't, we don't forget. We don't go back to sleep. You know, that's what it's so, what you were saying, you know, it's so easy just to kind of, the, the, those strong tendencies, those strong habits of mind, they have such a strong force. They can so easily just pull us back. We go so easily back to the old habits, the old tendencies. And this is what we mean by going back to sleep. Go back into automa- on automatic, the automatic way of being. So, so much of our practice is about what's going what's to help keep us awake, keep us alive. And I think having, that's where the forms, the forms of our practices do help because they are reminders for us. Like when we get into a meditation posture, it's not just about what happens when we sit in that meditation posture, but the fact that we're in that meditation posture is a reminder. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a symbol, it's a, a form of being awake. And so even when we just get into the posture, we're reminded of our deeper intention, our pure intention, that we want to be here. We want to be here for our experience. We want to be here for our life. Because those tendencies are so strong. And, and even talking again today, you know, just starting to see what happens as you come into the relational field again. Some of the strong habits of the personality, the social personality, how you know yourself to be, that just that formation, we come back into the formation. But it's okay, we all have personalities. We're, we're, our, you, you've already seen that the personality has not been erased. The personality is still here. But that's not all that's here. What's here too is the consciousness, the awareness, the awake aspect of our being. That's here too. And more and more we imbue our experiences with that awareness, with that mindfulness, with that consciousness. That's what we want to bring forth we want to bring with us. We don't want to forget. We don't want to go back to sleep. There's a line from uh, the, the Israeli-Palestinian woman poet, uh, uh, Nihab Shai. What's her first name? Naomi Nihab Shai. And there's one line that I often talk about, often mention on retreat, because it, it's like the, the line that reverberates in me when I think about practice or my relationship to my practice. And it's simply, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying not to forget something too important. I'm trying not to forget something so important, too important to forget. This simple remembering something too important to forget. 
that that that's how it feels for me that's how it feels for me in my uh my life that i don't want to go back to sleep because there's something so important that is too easy just to begin to forget so so that quality that, that i have there's that energy there's that uh, urgency or that that motivation that is very alive in me because i know how easy it is for those uh, patterns to the veils, we might call them, the veils to come down again and cover over that clarity or cover over the wisdom, cover over the heart, and then back in those tendencies again. I think that this is really what helps me stay awake is this deep kind of love or this deep passion for being awake and, and what life is like from that place of awakeness. When I, when I sat my very, very first retreat some years ago, back in the late 70s, I remember so well, I mean, it's interesting how, how probably for many of you too, there's something about that first retreat that is so potent I don't know if it is that way for you, but this, this first retreat, which was only a weekend retreat that I sat, some of you dove into a nine-day retreat, but you know, for me it was just a, a weekend retreat, and that was about all I could handle at the time. But there's something, it's, it's almost like I can put myself back there right now. That memory, my memory isn't so great generally these days, but I can remember that, that time of, of sitting and confronting myself in a way that I had never confronted myself before. And kind of that, that what, it, what it requires, that um, uh, commitment in a way, or the energy that it takes to stay so present in the face of seeing the patterns that are arising in the mind and the heart. But mostly difficult, negative, um, uh, a lot of images and ideas and beliefs and impressions that are not necessarily so positive, and having to see that and and who i 'm taking myself to be and that very very first retreat, I could see how my original motivation, my original motivation for coming to practice was to see if I could actually get away from myself. It was there was some promise that somehow I could dissolve myself enough into the kind of a empty space that I wouldn't even be there anymore. I wouldn't have to uh, uh, live in the personality that I believed that I was, who I took myself to be. And so I so much wanted to get away from myself. I, well, I didn't want to be the person that I was. And, and in, in the meditation, and it's still, at some meditations, there's still this um, kind of this idea or this, this uh, trajectory of transcendent, to be able to transcend experience, to transcend uh, uh, our direct senses and our mind. And it is possible, that is something that's possible in meditation. And that can be a practice that uh, we, we engage in. But that's not what this is. 
That's not what vipassana is. Vipassana is really a practice of turning towards experience directly in the moment, moment to moment to moment, seeing what is here, what is going on, and look at our relationship to that, see if we can find some way of being centered and stable and present and, and increase more and more our capacity for that quality of presence. And so I was, I really did, I did not want to be here. I didn't want to face myself. And so even on that retreat, and I've told this little story, but even on that retreat, I remember it was so hard to sit and and stay present and be in the agitation and the restlessness and the tiredness and the negativity and the judgment and the, you know, the sense of wanting to flee and the fear and the doubt and, you know, you know, the hindrances, all the hindrances. Be right in that, that I had this memory from when I was little in, in, in elementary school that one way to get out of class, which was a difficult, you know, often difficult, is just to go to the bathroom. You could actually leave and go in the bathroom and then just shut the door. And there was some kind of, you know, relief of just getting out of the, of the whole scene. And on that retreat, I went into the bathroom and shut the door. And it was this kind of sense of, ah, now I'm away. Right? But of course... Then the next thought is, I haven't gone anywhere, right? I'm right here. And that sense of wherever you go, there you are. And when you're awake, there is no way to get away. (laughs) And I know that, that some of you can relate to that. I mean, John and I were joking the other day about how before we even came to practice, that sense of the travel you know, traveling, going to, you know, maybe to another state or another country or, you know, Europe or whatever, and, and maybe then I'll get away, you know, get away. And I remember one time being, uh, when I was in my 20s, and one of the first times I went to Europe, um, wanting to get away, <laughs> wanting to get away from myself and my life and who, what I had created, and sitting in, uh, on top of a, a, a mountain, of looking over a vast valley in Italy, and absolutely beautiful, and sitting there very, very serene, and realizing that I was still unhappy, as unhappy as I was when I was back in, in this case, Kansas City. Just unhappy, you know, unhappy there, unhappy here. I can't get away. And so, so much of my original motivation was that, to run away, to get away. And I couldn't. And coming into the Vipassana, when I heard the teachings, the teachings were to turn towards the dukkha, turn towards the suffering, to, to, turn into the experience, see what's happening, what are those strategies that occur that we want to turn away or cut off or shut down or pretend something isn't happening. And I can look back and, and reflect back on my life before I came into the Dharma and there was so much pretense, so much pretending, 
So much, you know, wanting to build myself up into some kind of image of what I thought would be, you know, the right kind of person to be in the world, rather than actually finding out what's here, who am I? Who am I really? And so coming into the Dharma and just seeing how much I had really kind of fragmented or, or split off from that deeper sense of myself this, uh, in this image, in this idea of who I was supposed to be or should be or how to be. And paying attention, paying attention moment to moment and seeing how all those strategies, seeing how those strategies arise and, and the underlying fear and the doubt and the insecurity and the sense of uh, worthlessness and all that, that was playing underneath that, that, that pretense was built up on top of. And having to start to feel that or know that or sense that. And maybe that's really what kept me on, kept me on the path and kept going because the, the first retreat was so hard. I, I almost did have a little bit of a nervous breakdown in, in a weekend. And, this, and, <laughs> and the, the teacher who was James Barras teaching um, one of his first retreats in those days really just kind of pulled me out for a bit and said, just relax, you know, relax. <laughs> You know, kind of go, you know, just look at the trees and, you know, listen to the birds and, you know, it's fine. You know, you don't have to uh, make it so difficult. So, but yet I came back. I came back. And so something was really touched. And I think it really was the sense of knowing and hearing that I had to turn towards, I had to turn towards the pain. Because as I, whenever, when, if I kept turning away, if I kept turning away, I was going to be caught, left in, the, in the, the, the prison, caught in the prison of my own mind, of my own fabrication, of my own image. And I wasn't going to be able to touch something that was much, much deeper. And that's been, the, that's been so powerful for me is this turning, the turning towards experience, turning towards experience no matter what it is. No matter what it is, joining, kind of joining the dance of life, joining the full engagement of life. And it's not just all dukkha. I mean, as we, fortunately, you know, as we turn towards life, we see that it's this wonderful play of, Dukkha and sukha, you know, happiness and pain, suffering. It's, a, it's, a, it's, this, it's not one or the other. It's not black and white. And that's one thing that perhaps you've really seen clearly here. You know, this changing, this changing nature of things. I was, I was in India. I've spent a lot of time in India. And I went again last year... Um, Actually, not last year, year and a half ago. We're now in a new year. And um, I hadn't been for about 10 years. I wanted to go back, and it's a place of a lot of inspiration for me. And um, there's one, there's there's in um, India and in Tibetan Buddhism, there's wonderful statues and deities that are uh, wonderful manifestations of all these different 
uh, emotional states that we take uh, f- formation in. All the, you know, the very beautiful and um, uh, sublime states of compassion and uh, wisdom and emptiness and uh, uh, all uh, of the play and the dance. But there's also these fierce images of the of anger and lust and, you know, you know, the warrior and cutting through and, you know, these wonderful, wonderful uh, images, um, some that we have here in this room. And there's one that uh, I love from um, the Hindu tradition, which is the Shiva Nataraj. And um, uh, it's an a, a aspect of, of Shiva. There's many forms of Shiva, but one of them is Nataraj. And Nataraj is the dancer. And the, Nataraj has many arms and, and he's just touching all of life. And he's in a dancing pose. One, one leg is up and one leg is down. And the leg, leg that is down is just stomping on the head of the ego. You know, just like the ego is just out of the way and there's just this connection with the dance, with the dance of life. And I wanted to read um, just a little bit of what Michael Adams wrote about Shiva Nataraj because for me it, it's kind of an expression of the way that I um, perceive or relate to life now. And he says, Shiva Nataraj is the, is the dancer in time and space. Even if we should penetrate to the center of the temple, we cannot remain there. While life is in us, we must live in the world where the dance is. And to live truly, we must join the dance. He says, uh, the Shiva image is not a work of art only. It is a challenge. Shiva Nataraj calls his beholder to awaken from her sleep to know her true nature as God the the dancer and so to dance. We are asked to abandon ourselves, to suffer the joy and the pain and the pity of things, to stand wide to both the wonder and the wreck of the world and fearlessly take part in its turning. What an invitation for us to fearlessly take part in the turning. And he goes on to say, Science now assures us that stones dance as surely as stars. And Wes was teaching us this last night. A rock is a slow dancer, a flower a little faster. They are equal dances. There are no degrees in the dance of life, only differences. The sea advances and retreats. Fish do green dances in the deep. Salmon leap and swallows dip. Tall poplars dance as much as larks and birds do. The wind makes a dancing girl of the willow and a golden chorus of the wheat. There are many ways of dancing, Weird ways and wonderful, strange and simple ways, tender and terrible, innocent and brutal, solemn and bright, muddled and sublime. They are all of the dance equally. 
all of the dance. This is the play I was speaking about the other night, the Leela. Everything is dancing, everything is playing in all of its forms, all of its formations. And he says, in the words of the carpenter and Alice, and Alice in Wonderland, it, it is asked of us, will you, won't you, will you, won't you, will you join the dance? Will you join the dance? And I think this is really the invitation for us because I'm, uh, we, ha- we have so many strategies to pull away, to pull away because it isn't easy. It isn't easy here. You know, we all have challenges internally and externally. We all have difficulties in our life. There's, there's no way of getting around that. There's no way to transcend that. We are landed back right in the midst of things. And so what would it mean? What would it mean for you? If you can kind of sense into that. What would it mean to you, for you, to join the dance? You just feel that for a moment. You might be, a, might be able to sense the ways that you go, oh no, <laughs> we pull back into retreat. You know, when's my next retreat? When can I sign up? I felt that for so long. Got to get back to my retreat. Because then I would have those sublime moments, you know, those moments where they just penetrate through the personality. You know, those moments where everything stops and we're just in contact with the sublime, na- the natural world or the, or the mind stops and we're just in that sublime and exquisite peace. It doesn't last for very long, maybe for a little while. And it all starts up again. All the conditioning of the mind and the habits and relationship to things. So what does it mean? How, how, how would that look for you to join the dance, the dance of life, to be the dancer? And as for Shiva, Shiva Nataraj, he's dancing, but his foot is on the ego, right? The ego is out of the way. What would that mean? What does it mean to have the ego out of the way? And we talk about ego, when, we talk, when I talk about ego and the way that I've related to it, I really talk about it as the problematic ego. The, the, the problematic ego. So that's all the, all the Buddha was interested in, is the problem. Where's the problem? Where's the suffering? The causes and the conditions that are giving rise to the suffering. That's what we're interested in, is the problematic ego. So that's the greed and the hatred and the delusion and all the different formations of those three difficult states of mind. So to dance too with that, but dancing with from the from the place of the of the of the God consciousness, awake consciousness, or call it Buddha nature, that which is 
conscious, awake, in, in touch, engaged. So this is the invitation, and this is really what's given me the, um, the energy and the sense of urgency to keep going even through all the difficulty and the challenge and the suffering and the pain within my own mind and all that I see around me, is that it's really the faith, the faith to keep turning towards life, to keep engaging, to stay present, to show up even though there's parts of me that want to retreat, that want to disappear, that want to dissolve away and back into retreat or meditation or where that safe place is, that quiet place. But knowing in this practice that I need to come out, I need to show up, need to engage with myself and with the world. That's what we're being asked here. And so the faith, more and more and more, the faith that that is the way to more freedom, that is the way to liberate my mind and my heart, that is, that, that is what is going to liberate these causes and conditions that give rise to the suffering that I feel, is by turning towards it, turning towards it being present for it. And as I do that, it's not so painful. Somehow the pain even takes on a little bit of a different feel. It seems that from my experience that it's not as painful as when I'm trying to get away or judging, or angry, or aversive, or fearful, and all those different patterns that are my strategies to try to avoid the situation, that's really what's more painful. But as I turn towards it with awareness, and with compassion, and with wisdom, it actually starts to soften some of the edges. Makes it more possible where I start to feel more of my resources, feel more of my capacity, more of my strength, more of my heart, my wisdom, to to come forth into that. And that's where things start to feel easier. It's a funny, it's a paradox. It's It's kind of a, something the mind can't really get around so well is how can it be, how can there start to be more ease to go towards the dukkha and the suffering? How is that possible? The mind just can't make sense out of that until we're in the real experience of it. And we see that with the awareness and the, and the connection to our embodiment, and which allows us to bring some qualities of our wisdom forth, that's what really softens the edges. It gets easier and more exquisite and more sublime in that engagement. And sometimes then in that quality of presence, in that that 
dukkha starts to drop away and, and melt away, with that quality of presence, sometimes those moments then are just so exquisite. Not just on retreat, but in our daily life as well. When we're just right here for someone or for something that's happening, there's a kind of a stillness, a quiet, a connection with full engagement, a full presence, And sometimes that's, I think, where we can almost come into contact with something that we call, we start to, we start to talk about it in more uh, words like religious words or sacred words, where there's almost some kind of religious experience. And I, it's inter- I checked on, uh, before I came here tonight, I checked on the internet, because I remember hearing that uh, there was this study that... Um, when, there's, when the survey is taken uh, with people about their relationship to God or a higher power or a religious, religious experience, when they're trying to find out what percentage of people feel engaged in uh, religious experiences that way, the, the percentages are more than 90% of the people in the world more than 90% people feel some connection to something they either call God or higher power or something sacred. Why is that? I mean, I think that's phenomenal. This isn't a secret. (laughs) It's not a secret that people have access to something and, and a lot of times we're not talking about it. It's very, very personal. And so this becomes a very, very personal journey for us in the way that this takes form, this takes shape, whether you, you know, go back and do a very, you know, kind of more serious uh, practice in the form of uh, Buddhism or not. People, People are in touch with something very profound, generally, quite exquisite. Those moments of contact with something that we can hardly even name or talk about. And even today, when I was asking some people, we had a small group to talk about their experiences, it's hard to put into words. It's like words just start to drop away. So I can't really talk about it. There's something that, you know, it isn't something I can... Express. And yet it's there for us. And so this is what gives us faith. This is what gives us trust to keep going. This kind of sense of um, energy or, or determination or motivation because something becomes apparent to us in a very real way. And so we don't want to go back to sleep. We want to keep going. See what else is there. See what else we can wake up to. There's more and more and more. It feels like that. More and more and more. Sansanim, one of the great uh, Zen masters, says, If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. Anything. 
It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. This quality of the beginner's mind. This is really maybe one way of talking about our practice as we go back out into our daily life. You know, to see if we can practice this emptying our minds, keeping our minds you know, not so filled up with all of our plans and our ideas and our opinions and our views and our memories. and I mean, that all has a place. But it can also be uh, rather cluttering, clutter things up. So this practice of all these practices, not just the, the sitting practice, but so many practices of, that support us to empty, to let go, get quiet again, finding these times, finding these places where we connect again in a more, in this very authentic and real way with that, either the, the fullness of the moment in whatever way that it's taking, whether it's painful or difficult, but also those moments when it's very exquisite. This poem from Hafiz uh, also speaks to me. Let's see where it is. Maybe I didn't bring this one. It's not here. Oh, yes. He says, Don't surrender your your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. How about that? (laughs) Don't surrender your your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. Just that. This exquisiteness in all of its formations. And paying attention to ways that we just may not want to be here for that. Maybe only, only the really good, exquisite parts. So just leaving you with this in the words of the carpenter and Alice. Will you, won't you? Will you, won't you? Will you join the dance? Will you join the dance? Let's just sit for a moment together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.